0: My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues.
1: Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. you. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think Creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis.
2: That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s, I was buying them at Portobello Market and a one man's rubbish
1: is another man's gold. For me, it was about age, it was about the attitude of people, and it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently.
0: Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes, to how they impact on the environment, to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. (laughs) If Bianca Spender is not one of your favourite Australian designers, she should be. And I dare say will be after you listen to this I really do think she's one of the most considered, creative and thoughtful designers working in Australia today. I always have absorbing, surprising conversations with Bianca, and this is one of those. We recorded it at a wonderful event that happened recently in Sydney at the Sherman Centre for Culture and Ideas. The force behind that is Jean Sherman, who is a national treasure. She's a member of the Order of Australia, a philanthropist and art expert. And she ran our leading Asian art gallery here for a decade or more before setting SCCI up. And Jean is also an amazing person in fashion in her own right. She's a collector of Japanese designers. And a few years back, she gifted her archive of pieces by designers like Issey Miyake, Yoji Yamamoto and Comme de Garçon to the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences here. Anyway, this is a new festival that's going to be happening twice a year. The first one in April was a fashion hub and there will be an architecture hub later in the year. I curated a whole day of ethical fashion talks and workshops for it and this session with Bianca was part of that. So I'm really pleased to be able to bring it to you as a podcast. It's full of good stuff. We discuss Bianca's approach to integrating sustainability into every aspect of her business. We talk about her use of dead stock, her design process, and her relationship to and obsession with nature. And we talk about what it was like to grow up in the fashion business because Bianca's mother is Carla Zampetti, who, by the way, presented her first collection in Sydney in 1965. As you listen, Bianca will have just shown her latest collection for Resort 18 at Australian Fashion Week, which is happening right now. I'll be missing it because I'll be in Copenhagen, but I will be watching avidly as the pictures are shared online. And we will share some from Bianca's show on Instagram. You can find me at Mrs Press and you can find Bianca at Bianca Spender. As always, I'm delighted to hear your feedback, what you think of the show and if there's anyone in particular that you would love for us to interview. You can share the love by rating and reviewing in iTunes. I am delighted to welcome Bianca Spender. Bianca is known for her intriguing and modern clothes with a fiercely independent attitude. She started young. Her mother is Carla Zampatti, so she grew up immersed in fashion. But Bianca went her own way very early on, moving to Italy and then to Paris. Back in Australia, her eponymous label has been much and deservedly celebrated. She's a Fashion Week regular. She's been a Woolmark Prize finalist and is committed and has been for a really long time, and I think this is really key, to ethical and sustainable production. Bianca, it's lovely to have you here today. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's such a great forum to have. It's fab, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It's wonderful to talk about. And getting, even in the tea break, just having everyone discussing. I mean, I think it's the first time that I've really been in a room full of people that are all thinking about it, which is exciting.
0: On that note, I would like to say there will be opportunity for you to ask questions of Bianca afterwards, and I hope that you will. This is very much a conversation with all of you, not just between us up here. But I want to start, Bianca, with that word, sustainability. How would you define it? What does it mean to you in terms of fashion?
1: I think being sustainable for me, it means being careful and really understanding the value of things. And I think that we're starting to hear in the talks today, you heard about what what is it to produce a metre of fabric? What does that actually take? What is it to produce a garment? What level of wastage happens when you make the garments? how do you bring those things together? How do you value them? How do you make sure that you are being careful with them? Like like they, they were beans that you grew in your garden and you just didn't toss them out because you didn't get to them at the end of the thing because you knew you were only going to pick them when you needed them and you were only going to use them. So I think it's a... I mean, that's a very long-winded and kind of complex answer, but I think coming from an immigrant family, I was very much taught about the value of money the value of objects and the this hatred for waste my mum you know post-war Italy and came mm. out from the war I think you're really brought up with this idea of understanding of, of everything what it's worth and not not allowing waste in your life it made me think when you were saying that that it's common sense yeah when you it's... talk about
0: being careful it's interesting because I think we struggle sometimes to define that word sustainability but
1: what you're talking about is just being sensible yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably everyone has different character traits and I was that kid that, um, like, everyone will laugh. I always have everything in my bag, so my kids will always have an apple or water. I'm, like, one of those people who always picks up everything. I never lose anything. I'm, like, always used to pick up everyone's stuff after class and then give it to them in their next class. I so it's a bit of that weird kind of mummy personality. And I think also just as a person who... I'm not a very natural consumer and I think that's because I'm very particular and so it's actually quite hard for me to find anything that I love and compels me to buy it and I'm terribly impractical and I'm not going to buy something that is practical but I don't love. So finding something that's practical that I love is always my thing and that actually doesn't happen that often so I suppose that's part of why you come into this process of being a designer we have a joke that if I wasn't a designer I'd have no clothes because <laughs> I have no swimming costumes because I don't make swimming costumes so like everything that I don't make is always dying and so it's a very kind of, it's a really interesting practice so for me that editing, for me even with my designs, my ranges are kind of quite small, they're not massive there aren't hundreds of extra things in them because it's quite hard to meet that criteria of is it good enough, is it resolved enough? Is it special enough? Because you're going to invest into it, do you really believe in it enough?
0: I want to pick you up on that word resolved. I know that's something you think about very deeply in your design process. And we've talked about this before, you and I, about this idea of it can't be put out into the world unless it's very carefully considered and resolved.
1: Yeah. I want to talk a bit about I'm, that concept. Definitely. I mean I'm I have to preface it by I'm a total math head and I love science and so the construction side of it needs to be resolved and for me that means it needs to fit perfectly, it needs to hang perfectly, it needs to just mould around your body and have that flexibility for a few different body types. I mean women more than men have so many variations of our form that I absolutely love and adore and we'll always go for a Lucian Freud female portrait over a male portrait any day because our form is really exciting but it's about understanding how to how to clothe that form, how to surround it, what sculptural form to put on it that really sits and um you know, is in harmony with it. So for me it has to fit and fall and flow in a particular way and then the design itself has to be really resolved, you know, like do you need this extra cuff? Do you need the tabs? What are you trying to, you know, put onto it? What are those proportions? I like go crazy over millimetres and drive my team crazy over millimetres because it is that resolve and that perfect button or buckle. Yeah, I'm not a person who adds lots so everything I add is very considered.
0: I was thinking of words to describe Bianca. (laughs) We're going to talk quite a lot today about nature and about how nature has inspired Bianca's work full stop, but particularly this new collection that we're seeing here. But I was thinking about, what about our innate nature and how would Bianca describe herself? And she has just done it, but I, I came up with these three words to describe my friend, Bianca, in her nature. And I would say that she is thoughtful, creative and original. And as a designer, That's very important, of course, but it's also rarer than you might think to find someone who is purely designing from a a very original, never-derivative space. And we're going to talk about how you do it. But let's talk about nature. Um, Your Winter 18 collection, which we're seeing here, takes nature as its theme. I want you to just share with us something about your thinking. How
1: did you begin and what does that mean? So for me, the Letters to Nature collection was I was looking at sustainability in my business. My sister used to be the managing director and she left in 2017 at the beginning of the year and so I took over running my business and I had thought it's you know coming up to 10 years of my business. I really feel like I've had this special time to define my style and now my next challenge and my next chapter in my business is about making sure that what I'm doing is going to have a meaningful relationship to the people that have it and to the environment that it works in. So I was looking at sustainability everywhere. But I wasn't kind of... I was like, OK, so this is... I looked at all of my layers of all of my distribution and everything, but then I thought, OK, so if I'm really invested in sustainability, what does that look like creatively? Yeah. You know, what does it look like to have a balance between human and nature? And for me, that was a very... Powerful and very abstract idea that I had to really grapple with, and I started with elements of checks because I was like, well, the most man-made thing is check. You know, nature doesn't come in perfect straight lines, rigid. You know, man-made. it's very rigid, very man-made, very sharp. And then it was like, well, how can I distort those checks and how can I bring nature into it? So you'll have like this Prince of Wales coat that is very traditional on the front and then has this kind of draped voluminous bias back which kind of shows you how that even when you wear it the front has this real strictness to it and the back has this real fluidity to it and that was quite important to me and then working like this is like a houndstooth, so again another kind of check thing but then putting this moment of volume over it because I was thinking oh what's the other way of we how we interact in nature and it's like well we do things like we put trenches on to protect ourselves against the wind, so there are trenches and anoraks, but... You used this
0: phrase to me before the session, and you said you were thinking about how we stand in nature. I love that line.
1: Well, and when we stand in nature, I really thought about, well, personally, my love of standing in nature is wind. Like, I'm a person (laughs) who just adores wind. Like, windy days make me feel alive and inspired and engaged and like I'm flying. And so I started thinking about, well, how can I put wind into my garments? And so that's where you have these twists and there are loops through things and then with this overlay so there's always this moment of movement there's also always this moment of kind of let's say a strictness to it that then has this breakaway and it's not the two sitting next to each other it's the two really being juxtaposed in one element in one garment.
0: You also told me that you were thinking about how we protect ourselves from nature and I've been writing a lot recently about how we interact with nature and how we (laughs) back to your phrase, where we stand in and with nature. Yeah, But I think as an elemental thing, you know, when we go outside into the elements, we want to cocoon ourselves and, and protect ourselves from nature in a way.
1: Do you we want do. to talk about how
0: you've done that with the clothes?
1: Well, for me, it was working with, I worked with these, I suppose you call them like these symbolic elements, and they generally come from menswear in terms of, working with a trench and the the way that you wrap yourself up so a lot of the clothes you know they're all double-breasted but you really enshroud yourselves in clothing and all of the pieces in this collection have quite a lot of volume in it so it's this way that you're kind of you know making your protection against this world um and I think that's quite powerful I mean I've found always found clothes transformative and the way that I put them on always changes how I feel and what I look to them each day also changes how I feel so even this one like the sweep and the twist in the neck that's another moment or this loop that's going through the dress so again that was the one of trying to capture the wind so all of those things as it's very undefinable this idea it was that was just how I started looking at how to define it.
0: Were you a kid who went out into nature?
1: Oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I was the kid that always wanted to stand on the edge of the cliff. (laughs) My dad has a fear of heights and he would always be like, come back, come back. But I just love seeing the water smashing on the rocks and the wind just screaming through your hair. And it's always made me feel alive. All lightning and thunder, just love the sound (laughs) of thunder and all that kind of thing. So, For me, I mean, we were not a farm or a camping family at all. My sister and I am, and it's the joke of the family that we found this random gene that no one else in the family understands at all. But for me, I would have been barefoot my whole childhood if I could have, and I'm still barefoot most of the time in my office and at my home. It's like, everyone's like, oh, do you have a shoes-off house? And I'm like, oh, no, I just don't like shoes. (laughs) Um, yeah, I suppose that's my approach. I, I like feeling the ground. I'll often sit on the ground. I thought that when you said yeah, about I mean, having like, just shoes. like sitting on the ground. Often in my office when I'm thinking about an idea, I'm sitting on the ground, someone will be like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm just trying to feel what this feels like. <laughs> but that idea that we
0: need to touch the ground to earth ourselves to it, it's very literal, but I think it's valid. I think that it ties into this thing we were also talking about, about... When we look at the bigger picture of fashion and its profligate wastefulness and its polluting of rivers and its carbon footprint, and we try to change those things and we try and find pathways to make a better job of it... Mm. I think it helps for us to be connected with nature, to go out and see it, to be in it. I was saying to you before to go in the mud, to have the sand between your toes, to be in the ocean is to then want to protect it and care for it. But then you said to me something that came out of that conversation about listening to a radio show where they were talking about those things and then raising another route, which is the power of the visual. And that's where fashion can come in.
1: I mean, I think it's really interesting with this... um Blue Planet 2 series that Dave Attenborough has done. I was listening to the talk on Radio National and they were talking about how to change people's behaviour. Now, it's we've kind of you don't even understand your reflexes anymore. It's like, would you like a bottle of water? Or you go to a party, would you like a plate with that? Everywhere you go, it's just it's pervasive. And when sometimes I went to a plastic free Bronte event and the woman said, Oh, I said, oh, can I have a glass of water? And she gave me a plastic. I was like, no, 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 please not the plastic cup. She's like, oh, plastic-free Bronte. Yeah, <laughs> no plastic cup. Okay, I'll get a glass. And she was all... And it was clearly like a really... A, had to go through her head of thinking about that process because it's just an automatic reflex. And to untrain an automatic reflex, you really need to shock, unfortunately, and to create these very strong... You know like visual campaigns you see it when you're trying to change road behavior like people drink driving i remember grew up in huge campaigns or aids campaigns and you i feel like the blue planet series where you're seeing these seas of plastic you're seeing really unforgettably disturbing images of beautiful creatures that We are talked just, about the whale. Yeah, the whale and the the mother and the baby and just you know it i think we know that connection to our children, and you just can't not really have to take a breath in when you think about what you are doing that you're totally unaware of. In Australia, we're quite lucky. We still have a relationship to environment. The coastline's closed. We live in a cosmopolitan city, but in urbanised environments, you need those, and in Australia, you need those images that really arrest people enough to go... Oh oh no. Okay. No, I'll um do you have a glass to tap water please and you know, and to make you think about different ways that you can do it.
0: I mentioned the whale. If any of you have seen Blue Planet Two, which is now seeable in Australia, yeah. um, there is a sort of terrible moment where a, a mum and a mum and a baby whale and the mum is carrying around the dead baby whale. It's most terrible. And David Attenborough made the connection between plastic pollution and the death of that whale. And it was then suggested that he couldn't make that connection because we don't know if that's why the baby whale died. But it didn't really matter because what we were doing was shocking people into saying, this is happening and this could be the outcome. And I think in Britain in particular, we've seen enormous change and move towards getting rid of plastic. Yeah. I mean, I raised that because you and I talked about it, but how do you bring that back?
1: <laughs> we got off in a bottle
0: But how do you bring that back to then the power of the visual in fashion because what you're doing is less literal and yeah. less shocking. It's beautiful. How do you then harness that to make change and change the conversation?
1: Oh, I mean, it's really fascinating. And I, I think for me... One of the biggest things to start with has been about, I mean, firstly, if I look at the whole debate around fashion, inputs is a huge debate. Then you have to think of your practices and your efficiencies within it. And then you have to think about your output, you know, the reduce, reuse, recycle. So, you know, is it getting recycled? Is there a second hand market for it? And I'm really excited about things like the Fashion Revolution campaign, which is like, who makes your clothes? And I'm doing this capsule collection and someone signs each swing tag there is a name you know the name of the person who made your clothes and I think we live in a very mechanized world and we no longer have any well no one actually made that glass really but this coat there was a woman this pant there was a woman to the point that uh, we have this crazy joke going on in my office because every now and then a size 8 will be perfect and the size 10 is terrible. And we're like, what's her name? She just got this wrong. What did she do? Why is all the 6, 8, 12, 14, 16 is all perfect and the size 10 terrible? And you know there's a hand. You know, it's got a handwriting. Sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. It's but... interesting you bring
0: that up though as an example that in Bianca's business, she can really say... That was Susie or whoever it was that made that. Mm. That connection's largely been severed when it comes to fashion. And for Bianca to actually know who made her clothes down to who sewed the button on, that's an extraordinary thing. You've been long accredited with Ethical Clothing Australia. Do you want to just share with us, perhaps if people don't know what that is, what it means, Mm. and maybe a bit about why you decided to go down that route?
1: So Ethical Clothing Australia is... um a uh, body that has brought together people that are making in Australia but also that you have to go through a process with the unions where they visit all of your makers and generally they revisit all your makers every year but they visit all of your makers, they actually physically check out the space it's OH&S, all of it's um, machinery, they check all the books they look at how many people are being paid what level of garments you're getting made and therefore do a vague kind of accounting of are they all getting paid minimum wage, the people that are on the books for the amount of stock that they have. So is there anything being hidden in the books? And because we're a very above-board company, they come in and they do that yearly and every year you get re-accredited once they've gone through all of your books and done an audit on your company. So it's quite a huge Mm. process and it was a massive undertaking, but something my sister and I, who really led it, were very committed to I think it's a very powerful thing that basically you can almost say... I would say 90%, but at least 80% of all the people that make clothes are women. And working in in a female industry for women, I think there's a real sense of obligation to be making sure that the women who are making your clothes are paid accordingly and are held, you know, like the business is accountable to them. And it was a real way of us... Making sure that we did went through that whole process with our makers that was quite guided and gave us all these structures. We then started doing tests in our own studio of how long it took us to make a jacket. And, you know, I've got Sarah in the audience who's in my team and we'll go, that takes too long. There's no way we can make that dress in production I can't pay $200 for, you know, the 10 hours that it took to make it. How can we bring it down? And we'll then work with our sample machinists and then we'll work with our makers and say, this is the construction we've taken out, this button flap or Mm. this lining, or, you know, we've adjusted it. You know, now can you make it for the price that, you know, I know I can pay for it in the market?
0: It becomes this very clear pathway to making your business more efficient better run because you can have this open dialogue with the people making things in australia i'm not sure if you're aware but 92 percent of the clothing and accessories that you buy in australian stores are made offshore so we could look at that from a glass half full perspective and we should that we are still making eight percent of stuff here we do still have a lively industry small but it exists But that's one of the bonuses, isn't it, that you can actually have these human relationships. It's not just an email to a factory you've never seen on the other side of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that, I mean, I grew up with it. I knew all of the makers since I was working in the business from nine, and now they know my kids. They all know Vo. Hi, Vo. (laughs) there are these key people. But I think they are your greater company. You know, our four makers, three of them work exclusively for us, and one has we're her major clients so they take holidays when we take holidays you know we collaborate all of our cutting and everything in line with them and if they get sick or their parents get sick or we know about it just like you know when you're mm. in store and I think that there's the skills that they have are amazing and the way that we can communicate and evolve and I teach him things about or her how to sew this or how we, we constructed mm. it. And we also, all of our machinists, like most of our makers, well, I could almost say all of Vietnamese, and all of our sample machinists are Vietnamese. So if I can't communicate it properly, I'm just like, okay, you guys talk about it and I'm sure you'll find a way that together they can work it out. And do that's really powerful. They feel like they make a difference, which, and they do. I, they're my painters. They paint your vision. They make it happen.
0: I was just gonna say that. Does it give the clothes more soul?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I was so touched. One of these beautiful makers that came in the other day, she's like, I really like this dress. You've done a really nice design. And I was like, oh, that was, she was like, she's like, it's a bit tricky, but it's worth it. And (laughs) I was like, and it was really meaningful to me because I don't know if you've ever sewn. There's something quite beautiful and meditative. And I'm sure there can also, is. sometimes it can get boring. But if you're doing my clothes, it never gets boring because yeah. there's always something going on that's a little bit complicated in them. And she said to me, I really like your clothes because they make me think, you know. I'm mm. thinking, how do I put this together? It's not just sew all these well, seams. And there was something I was like, oh, thank God. It's not just making you, you know, lose your hair at night. It's actually, you know, inspiring mm. you and making you think. It means a lot. One
0: of the interesting discussion points that I've heard raised around this idea of ethical production is that involving of course the family of people who make the clothes into your creative process makes it more interesting for everyone involved more soulful in terms of the end result but obviously it costs more I mean I was going to say if it's so fantastic to make in Australia why is it only 8% why don't more people do it?
1: Oh, I mean, I think that there's no doubt it costs more. I, there also have been shifts. I mean, it's interesting. I think there are some people looking at getting back into making Australia because being part of a global economy is fantastic and challenging because basically at the point that there was parity exchange between the US the U.S. dollar and the Australian dollar, I mean, in that single year or 24 months that it was almost du- the duration of, I think you would have seen... of our manufacturing moved offshore at that time because prior to that it had always been like, you know, 70s and that's a very different price to suddenly one for one. And now it's adjusted and you'll see all of the prices in China have gone up and now everyone's looking for what's the new China and they're trying lots of different avenues to find that price again that they can't find that we kind of got a little bit too used to too.
0: I want to go back and pick you up on something that you mentioned before you said I've known this since I was nine working in or seeing what my mother did (laughs) I wonder if you'd like to share with us I mean it's extraordinary most people don't find themselves immersed in the business of fashion as little kids you guys do. (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about your journey how you went from watching what your mother did to then taking a very different path going to Paris what you did there and tell us how you got here
1: so we had a nanny until we were nine that's what happened and then basically at nine mum was like okay right I think you guys can look after yourself and you can come in to work on the holidays because I don't want you watching tv all the time which I totally understand now having kids. So we came into work every day unless we had a play date so I worked out, I like by the time I was 18 I'd already done years of work. Child labour. Probably not even paid. Totally outrageous isn't it? It's just called being part of an immigrant family I think (laughs) really but I was very lucky at the time even more than now, I mean the fashion industry is one that you can access quite easily. I feel always very lucky you know, what are you doing today? I'm making a coat, I'm making a dress. Mm. What did you do? shot this dress or you know you can engage with it so for kids it's a really wonderful yeah I'm not sitting on a computer I work with a pattern they can see what you're doing it's like and then you can sew something and then it's a little messy industry so there's always jobs that kids you can, can put the do. buttons back in the box oh my gosh Domo found like basically a box of pins on the floor by picking up all the pins and sorting all thread colors sorting all zippers like it's messy so the mess of it is a really great learning ground for children and I've done everything from swing tags, barcodes, filing before there were like daily taking sheets were written by hand and you had to file every single one for 30 stores around Australia. They left that job for us every school <laughs> holiday and, they'd come, and there'd be this pile and they're like oh it's time to start file the daily taking sheets and it was like these <laughs> hilarious holiday jobs and everyone who did work experience remembers <laughs> us because we were there and we're like oh yeah you were nine and I came in and I was 12 or the other way around so there's this whole kind of experience.
0: So there. what led you to Paris because you worked for Martine Sipong who's yeah an amazing designer did so
1: I obviously grew up in the industry and then was pretty sure that it was pretty tough and I was not sure I was talented enough to do it and went and did a Bachelor of Commerce because I had valued being independent and I think we all learnt in our family we all ended up doing commerce or economics because we all valued business and independence and then went to get a job and realized I didn't care about selling something unless it was something I cared about And so I did a short course in fashion and then loved it and enrolled and two years later finished and was like, oh, I can't, I was very aware, you know, mum said you can work with me and that had been my job. My only job in the whole of Australia has been working at Colors & Patty, and now in my own business. I was like, wow, that's crazy. But... (laughs) I then was like no I need to see who I am outside of this context and I need to know if I can stand up on my own two feet without you know Carla's daughter and I need to know who I am and so I was also very I love draping and working in the third dimension on the dolly and the mannequin and that's really a technique that's quite embedded in europe and there's a lot of craft that Mm. they've really handed down through the generations. so i i went to work in italy first as an apprentice for an amazing pattern maker and then i moved to paris to really get into draping and
0: can i just say how many designers in australia went and apprenticed with an amazing pattern maker that's gold Mm. and that explains the beauty of her silhouettes it really does Thank well done. It's a good thing I to do. I have
1: say that, Claire, it's really touching because I go mad over millimetres and some people, I'm like, I wonder if anyone notices. And sometimes people don't and sometimes people do and when they do, it's really beautiful. Sometimes I'll see these Italian grandmas and they'll be like, hmm, and they'll like <laughs> look under here and they'll turn around your collar and they'll just give you a nod and they walk on. <laughs> it's really lovely.
0: <laughs> on a completely different note, let's talk about fabric. So, well, it's not a completely different note because when you're immersed in that European tradition of tailoring, you're very much mm-hmm. thinking about fabric. But I would love to ask you about the fabric that you used for this collection. We mentioned deadstock before.
1: I, I think you now all understand what deadstock fabric is, which is great because it's like a term that no one <laughs> really understands. Yeah. But I have always had two suppliers that I deal with that by end job lots of other companies overseas. And I've always wanted to work with them because you have this great opportunity to find fabrics that you could not make and use a fabric that you do not have to produce. So you really are, You, I mean, personally, I just have, it just feels like this a little bit of a weight's lifted off, this clear conscious of like, I didn't turn on one tap for this fabric. I just, it was sitting on a pile and someone had no, didn't think it was precious like they don't value Mm. it very highly they pick it up, The agents take massive risks but they pick it up quite cheaply because they write it off, you know the designer buys 4,000 metres and they end up using 3,500 and there might be 500 Mm. metres of a fabric that is gold for me and is nothing for them anymore because the fashion cycle does move so quick, so everything that you see, including what I'm wearing today, is... Dead stock fabric. Um, so it has been bought from one of those agents. And I'm at this lovely size that I'm big enough to buy a nice job lot. But I've been thinking, oh, if I grow, what do I do? I might just do more stories because I really want to be able to maintain that dead stock. And I committed to 50%. Last year, I was like, right, this is about sustainability. I've been. I've always been invested, but I've never measured it. And I went back and I measured all my collections, and some were at 20 and some were at 30. And then sometimes we just had a hit and miss collection, and we we're like only 18. And I was like, no, this is it. I have to really try and get it to 50, get it to something that feels really meaningful. And so you always start with those fabrics, and then you're like, you start with things you love, and you have to work out how you can weave things in between them to create a story because it's not a blank canvas but that's also really beautiful because you have it framed by things that you love that you think are precious Mm. that I also couldn't make like Mm. they wouldn't start a machine and make 300 meters of that Mm. they'll only make 5,000 so they I would never ever be able to buy it and so there's this treasure but you have to work Mm. out some of them I've kept like I have to laugh, I had this one that I loved that it took me three years. I had this supplier and it kept on holding. I'm like, we'll get there, one year (laughs) we'll use it. And three years later after first having seen it, I ended up using it and I loved it. It was perfect for that collection. So they really build these little stories that you can create with them.
0: I wanted just to share some information about the um, amount of dead stock fabric that exists in the world. Um, before we heard the shocking statistic that a third of all clothing becomes pre consumer waste. We have no idea how much fabric becomes pre consumer waste, but we do know that they burn it and we do know that they destroy it. Um, this stuff is not mapped out. No one wants to tell you these things, so companies aren't producing reports saying, This is how many meters we destroyed. But I interviewed one of the co founders of Fashion Revolution, whose name is Osola de Castro. And she told me a shocking story about going to a mill in Sri Lanka to come and buy some deadstock fabric, some surplus for her label, which was called From Somewhere and operated out of Italy and London in the 90s. But she went there and she saw with her own eyes a huge warehouse that was filled with rolls of fabric And she started to ask questions, and the warehouse owner really didn't want her asking questions and could sense there was an issue. She then came back with a journalist from The Guardian, who wasn't Lucy Siegel, I'm not sure who it was, to report on it, and all the fabric had gone. No. I mean, we don't know how, but we do know that they burn it. And there are these ways of using it. There's this trash treasure
1: world. Like, there's always someone... I mean, I've always loved second-hand stores, and I suppose it's like a continuation of... That love, and the only clothes I wear are mine or secondhand generally. And I think that it's probably an, a morph of that, you mm. know, like finding things that you love that are really precious, that are really special, that you can't get every and anywhere. And Finding a way to re you know, to bring them into a modern context.
0: How about that you set yourself a goal? So you actually put a percentage on this? Is that I did. That's
1: interesting. I'm a total math geek at the same time. So you know, there's these ideas of things you want to do and then it's like what would be meaningful? And I very much with my children, I loved it. I think there were Domo my son was talking about what your parents do, and he's like um, my mum makes clothes and my daddy saves the world because Sam's an <laughs> environmentalist and I was like that's it isn't it I'm, just tell it like it is and I thought well you know I do feel that there is a there is a selfishness behind being a designer saying this is my vision watch it, look at it do you want to buy into it and there's a part of that that I you know, struggle with because I'm like well I hope you like this but you never know you're making it before, you've decided before you're there, you know like you, you're investing into something that you don't know if someone's going to mm-hmm. love and so it's a risk and I'm I was like well if i know that 50% of that bet is made with something that not a cent of the environmental impact went into and the other 50% is trying to weave a story to the 50% to create one body of work then it's not a perfect world and i still have an impact and i i uh, really have to think about that but if i can create longevity in design if there is a secondhand market for my clothes if i manage the factories that i'm dealing with that i'm making making the 50 percent of the fabric with if i'm reducing mm-hmm. in my company the waste we did a report on the meterage and the wastage of every single pattern because even once you've got a metre of fabric, when you cut something out, it's not a jigsaw. It doesn't fit perfectly together. And there are pieces that really fit and you can get up to 80 or 90% efficiency. I think we got to 95 maybe on one crazy thing where I'd done these pieces that you just cut a roll off the roll and then when you drape from one piece of fabric off the roll, it fits perfectly because it's from the roll. But when you get into, like, little messy pieces mm. and sleeves, sometimes you're like, whoa, that's going to be so unhelpful. So now we, like, flag it as we're making it. So it's like, no, no, this one, this one's not going to pass. You've got to think about a way that it's going to put a seam in so it can fit so, so that you're not wasting.
0: Are you really thinking about that from a waste perspective as yeah. well as an economic one?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got this, like, rating system, and my machinist also has a rating system. And I think we were something like... Oh, it was, like, one to five... And sometimes she's like, Bianca, bring it in. You've got to have a few more seams or we've got to think of a way to do this better. And it's like, do you want to see the table? I'm like, okay, just take a photo. I'll go look at it tonight and think about how... And I love jigsaw puzzles. So I think about how we can cut it up and make it into a jigsaw puzzle so it can be more efficient.
0: Do you think designers... This is a big question, but do you think designers have a responsibility to do these things or find their own way of addressing these bigger issues around waste?
1: I think we all have a responsibility. I think that we all have a responsibility to engage. I mean, I think it's always fascinating. I don't know what the figure is, but what is it we use something like 30% of our brain? I'm sure there's a good 70% that we could start using to think about these and to think about, I mean, we love problem solving, intrinsically humans, like why do we do puzzles on the weekend? Why do we do crosswords? Why do we do all these things that we don't have to do? Why are we trying to solve all these little things? And if we can think about how can we solve these bigger things that have more impact than a crossword or a jigsaw puzzle? What's this jigsaw puzzle look like? We went on holiday and was like, what does the jigsaw puzzle look like? How do I buy my kids a Slurpee and not use plastic? that's a really interesting one doesn't sound like really but it was like okay so we have to take a cup from the house and then we have to try and convince the convenience store guy at Magnetic Island on the Great Barrier Reef that really he doesn't want more plastic in the ocean (laughs) and that this cup is the same size as the Slurpee cup that is in his news agent and there is no option except letting me use my cup we don't want to put more plastic into the environment. So Bang! It was, but it was he was looking at me like, you're really thinking about this? And I'm like, yeah, I really am. He'd pleased. been bianchered. <laughs> but there are always solutions. They're definitely not as convenient. And I think that's okay because I don't wear practical clothes, so I've never been very good at being convenient with things. I kind of am fine with if things being a little bit impractical or inconvenient. But I do think, we're adaptable, and we can do this. We just have to want to. And and I have to make a game out of it, I have to make a challenge out of it. Think about it as you're a kid, and you get told at school they have nude food. You're not allowed any plastic. It's all lunch boxes. There's not a piece, there's no garbage allowed. And I, it happened from one year to the next. Right. And that- Everyone suddenly doesn't have any plastic in their lunchbox. How does that change overnight? It this can is, happen overnight.
0: That is one of the most... If we were taking notes today and we took away a takeaway, I think that's the best one. The fact that we often talk about how enormous the problems facing us, particularly around the environment, and we think, well, we can't change culture. We change culture every day. and we can change culture quickly obviously some of it takes more but we make decisions that impact on everything that we buy and do and all the businesses we support and we have got the power to change things we just need to actually try
1: but it's not even trying I mean I think I'm a total again sciencey mathy, geek but Like, it's a great problem to solve. It's a great problem to think about. If you want something to think about, think about it. And then think about who you can pitch that idea to. You know, like, maybe you just create a challenge amongst your friends. Okay, let's see this week who of us can try and not have a plastic cup or a plastic bottle. I remember my poor kids were like, mum, I'm really thirsty. And I was like, well, you've drunk all the water and we're not near a tap. There's a plastic cup. No, we're not going to use it. And it's not easy, but I think you have to start trying. Or with the things, like I remember someone said to me, oh, the dress is beautiful. You don't want to put a seam in it. I was like, I really don't. But if it's going to change it from Mm. 60% wastage to 80% wastage, I have to try. You know, we have to try and work out where that seam is. And Like, I'm lucky I'm a craftsperson, so I can do it. Like, I can find the solution because I'm quite connected to, I know exactly what all the shapes look like. I can work out what I can manipulate and what I can't. And so we have to start thinking more about everything that we engage with and what are all the processes to involve that change.
0: I'm going to throw open the opportunity to ask questions to Bianca to you guys. I think, um, thank you so much for sharing your insights so far. It's so interesting to hear about how your process works. I have
1: to tell you one little funny story because this was about changing culture and it took me two years. So two years ago I said to my makers, I don't want to use plastic bags on my, like on clothes, you know how they always bag them in a, like, I said, I don't want to do it anymore. And they're like, no, 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 we have to do it. I was like... I grew up in this industry. I was here when I was nine. There were no plastic bags on the clothes. Mm -hmm. The clothes all got delivered. It was all fine. And they're like, no, 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 we need them. And I was like, guys, I know that you can do it without it. And they're like, no, no, we need it. So a year went by and I was like, oh. What am I going to do? Anyway, I came back to them and I was like, okay, guys, I really think we've got to do something about this. No, 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 we need them. I was like, why do you need them? They're like, well, it holds the pressing when you put them on. And then I wrote an email to the store. Store said, no, the customers insist, certain customers insist that it comes out of the back room in a plastic bag so that no one has put it on, no one has touched it. It is a perfect garment. It is like, in a way, it's clean, you know. Oh. It's this idea of cleanliness and perfection and... And I was just like, this is crazy. And then, again, like, everyone were all talking about wasting everything. I was like, right, I'm not going to give up. And I said, okay, guys, we're going to give away the plastic bags. And they're like, no, we can't. I was like, yes, we can. Look, we're going to do a month. We're just going to try this. I said, anything that's white and silky, you can put a bag on. Anything that's not white, which is basically 80% of the clothes and white silk, you don't put a bag on. And did it work? And I said, if it gets dirty, I'll do it. The first day, the woman who delivered, she had them all not in plastic bags. They fell off the rack, oh. it all got creased, and we were ironing sixty jumpsuits. And my mum was like, "Why are you ironing those jumpsuits? The makers should have delivered them perfectly ironed." And I was like, "Yes, I know." <laughs> and I remember looking at my team going. Is this an omen? Like, is this the world really trying to say that I really shouldn't be pushing back on this? Anyway, that was the first and only thing that ever went wrong with it. And now we don't have plastic bags on anything except things that are white and silky. And, that, and I said okay. I gave a month trial, but they never came back. They Amazing. Never asked. So it did work. It did work. I was going to say
0: the takeaway is, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again.
2: <laughs> but, yeah. Who would like to ask Bianca a question? We'll bring you a mic. <laughs> Thank you for such an intelligent and passionate discussion about your work, your creative process and your business and thanks for leading such an interesting dialogue. I'm an environmental lawyer and um, over the last few years I've had cause to do work on human rights violations in seafood supply chains. Oh, I was reading about this the other day. Right, it's gotten quite a lot of press, but what's gotten less press is perhaps other... Human rights violations. Human rights violations and even violations of international labour organisation laws. So it's not quite at the level of a human rights violation, but certainly not in line with best practice. Labour laws, violations in the fashion mm. industry. Mm. So, Claire, you quoted a statistics. I, I didn't realise it was 92%. 92%. I knew, I knew it was high that most clothes and accessories that and accessories were produced offshore. Do you think there is an appetite within the local fashion industry to improve monitoring of supply chains overseas and to raise awareness around what's actually happening in those factories?
1: I think that consumers are driving people to really think about it. I think that there's definitely needs to be campaigns around it and in the way that with this fashion revolution campaign, I think it's really built a momentum this year that I hope will make a difference. It's incredibly sticky in terms of at the moment like I was saying to Claire with fabrics for the 50% that I do make overseas, I make the fabric. 30% or 40% is with manufacturers that I have an ongoing relationship and I know about their business and then 10 to 20% is with agents and when you deal with an agent they don't tell you who you're dealing with directly and the reason why is because you can then go and deal directly with them and cut them out of the relationship so they will never tell you who it is so getting transparency on what are the practices. I have sent like the Australian Water Stewardship has a survey that I've sent to my key Suppliers, but my other suppliers, I don't have a direct email relationship with them at all. I can't get that. So I've really started to hone in on who I use and who mm. I trust to these two suppliers that I know are quite tight around how mm. they deal. And I can be a bit more pushy with them about, I need you to get this. But it's so sticky and so hard and they have to want to and some people want to out their own violation and other people have to want to because their customers demand it and i think that's where we're starting to see people you know really demanding and we have to see more exposure you know we have yes. to see more people doing the wrong thing to get people go you know enraged and to get people active and to get people engaged in actually going no no i need transparency i need to see this because the fashion cycle we talk about mm. it moves so fast mm to do these things is you've got to make it a top priority because otherwise you've got another 30 things that are run onto there every day.
0: We've got huge problems through the fabric supply chains across fashion and also across what I like to call not fashion but you know the cheaper clothing stuff. All those big stores like Rivers and Kmart and Target and Lowe's, these cheaper companies are using cheaper fabrics. I was reading just recently, about slavery in the cotton supply chain and some producers preferring children to pick the cotton because of their little fingers that are softer and don't damage the crops. It's I think not. these it's stories protest. are not... It's, it's yeah.
1: protest to think you're
2: wearing on your back it's something that has involved that kind of a human rights violation. Oh,
0: I totally agree. Terrible. And nobody wants to. No,
1: but that's I, the thing but I do that's think right. also we're not, we're not using, where we come back to common sense, like, I suppose... If you go to buy a pair of shoes for $5 or $10, how, how, how? Because how can you make a pair of shoes for $5 or $10 properly, you know, like and think that people are getting paid proper wages and everything? I don't know how you can. And i think maybe everyone should go home and try and sew a t-shirt and see how long does that take you and then you know i think cooking you know people get how long it takes but we're no longer connected to what it takes to put a pocket uh, so sew. even sewing buttons like every button costs me a certain amount every time i add a certain button because buttonholes are only the shirt makers they can do on a machine Every other button is done by hand pretty much because the spacing of the four holes is not regular. It's only like men's shirt buttons that are regular enough they can do it on a machine. And things like welt pockets. So if you have a pocket that goes across, you know, like and has a flap, they can do that on a machine. It's not a person. But if it's not in a straight line, it's done by a person. And if you try and sew a welt pocket, you don't get too done in under... 30, 40 forty minutes—like it's just hard. So it's all about understanding
0: mm.
1: what goes in mm. and how can you get to that price, and in the end. and trying to reconnect with those
0: stories and processes. If we're not familiar with them, I don't know. That's fascinating. Mm, yeah. And then you look at a pocket in a completely different way, right? I'm um, just on your point though. I would say that Fashion Revolution has done a great deal to raise issues around transparency throughout the industry. I sit on the advisory board here, but it was started in the UK. It, it's in its fifth year this year, or fifth anniversary. Rana Plaza happened in 2013. So since then, we've really seen a lot more focus from a government and from a regulatory perspective on fashion supply chains. And we need more, but it's it's definitely changing. Uh, awareness yeah, is changing, for sure. Which is very positive. Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Bianca. You obviously absorbed a lot of influence from your mother. I wondered if you're now influencing her in turn and if she's taking on any of your ideas and practices
1: and helping to spread that towards
0: the more established
1: companies? I I mean, I think um, Mum is got it in her blood as a post-war immigrant. She has, you know, it's it's the common sense version. It's the always uses everything as efficiently as possible because I think she really came from nothing and really appreciates it. So I've never had to teach her anything about wastage at all. It's been a, a real... A real pleasure and it's a real family value that we all share Mm. Um, and she's been committed to working in Australia and she has made it possible because even for me as a smaller um, maker I think that I just grew up with these makers and knew how to work with them and knew how to build relationships, and that's because she had had long-term relationships with all of them. Some young designers just, you know, they're coming in and dropping little... Rela- it's not these long-term things. So I think I've always been committed to a very long-term vision and a long-term goal, and that's been something that's kind of come through our family tree.
0: Thank <laughs> you, Bianca. Thank you so much. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's getting hot. My
0: feel all that they are Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today hop on over to my website which is clairepress.com forward/podcast. slash You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first and best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because
1: I love you, my bird's